Turn with me to Matthew 18. It's our next stop as we preach through the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 18, verse 21, through the end of the chapter. Before we read the text, I want you to hear a psalm, actually two. To listen to how the psalmist expresses th this weight of sin, how he feels the magnitude of his sin against God. He says, there is no health in my bones because of my sin. My iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden there, too heavy for me. Evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. You ever felt the magnitude of your sin like that? I want you to think about, I you to think about something. How, how many times have you sinned against God? I really want us to contemplate that for a minute. How many times have you offended God? How many times have I sinned against God? How many minutes of your life have you failed to love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength? How many times have you willfully sinned? Like temptation comes, you see it, you know it, you know the thing you're about to do is sin, and you just do it anyway. How many things have you thought or done or said that you would be totally ashamed for anybody else to even find out. How many sins have you forgotten about? How many sins have you sinned you didn't even know you were sinning? I want you to do the math or try to do the math. Like count them all up. Not just so that you would see the magnitude of your sin or feel the weight or the magnitude of your sin, but that you would see the magnitude of the forgiveness of God. How many times has God forgiven you? Like, that's part of the push of this passage. How many times have you offended God and He's forgiven you? How many of your sins did Jesus bear in His body on that tree? How many? That song we sing, our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. How true, how true is that? Now what does that do to your heart? Like, What does that do to your heart? When you put those two things out there, how many times you've sinned and how many times he's forgiven you, what does it do to your heart? Does it make you thankful? Does it make you want to praise God? 
Doesn't he want you to, doesn't he make you want to hold a grudge when somebody sins against you? Doesn't it make you bitter when somebody offends you? It better not. It better not. That's what this passage is about. So I want you to search your heart. I want you to think about somebody that's offended you. If a name pops in your head right now, I want you to search your heart and ask, are they forgiven? Have, have I really forgiven them or am I still counting their sins against me? What we're about to read here is not just history. It's not just another good teaching from Jesus. This is a command from the good shepherd to his sheep. And he says, forgive them. He says, forgive them today. Before the sun goes down, you forgive them just like I've forgiven you. And he says, my sheep, they hear my voice and they follow me. So let's pray that we would hear his voice today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I ask, Lord, that you would show us your glory. I pray that you would show us your goodness, both your justice and your mercy. I pray that you would put that on display through the preaching and teaching of your word. And, Lord, I pray that you would search my heart. That you would search our hearts and show us, is there any forgiveness in us right now? And you would grant us repentance. That we would do just like you, our master and king. And forgive our brother from the heart. Show us the glory of your grace. That we might walk in it. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord... How often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience on me, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused. 
and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then the master summoned him and said, You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Jesus says, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. It's a very solemn text, if you think about it. But there's much glory here. I want you to look at how this passage begins. Peter has a question for Jesus. He says, basically, how often should I forgive my brother? And I want you to ask this. Where does that come from? Why does, why does he ask this question? Is this just random? Who knows Peter's mind? But I want you to see how this question is actually connected to what's going on in the moment. You see that very first word, then Peter came up to him, or at that time, Peter came up to Jesus and asked this question. And so this question has been provoked by the things that have just transpired. There's no, no way to know exactly which one of these things stirred Peter's heart, but here's three possibilities. This question from Peter may be provoked by the implications of verses 15 through 21. Or 15 through 20. So Peter had just heard Jesus teach about church discipline. Which the first step there involves the offended party going to the brother that sinned and telling him his fault. But if he doesn't listen, right? You go tell your brother that his sin, but if he doesn't listen, you got to take two or three others. And this is escalating into church discipline discipline but what happens if he does listen what happens when you go to him and tell him his fault and he does listen meaning he does repent what do you do well the implication is that you forgive him on the spot okay how many times how many times are we going to do this this question may also be provoked by the application, a personal application of that same church discipline text. And so you got to think about what started this whole conversation to begin with. Somebody in this group, Peter and the disciples, might need forgiveness after this big argument that started about who's the greatest. That's, that's what started chapter 18 and Mark and Luke tell us that this was a pretty heated argument about who is the greatest 
So it's not hard to imagine there's a, there might be some envy going on among the disciples, especially maybe towards Peter. Peter's the one, if you remember, in chapter 16, who made the great confession. And Jesus said, you're blessed by God. And then he gave him the keys to the kingdom. And then Peter was only one of only three that actually got to go with Jesus up on the mountain to pray when Jesus was transfigured. And then Peter, he's always stepping up and he's always talking for the group. And on top of all that, he gets a free shekel out of a fish's mouth to pay his taxes. You can imagine what Judas might think about that. So there might be some real offenses that have transpired in all of these things that have led up to this moment. And so the uh, application of this church discipline teaching is you got to forgive your brother, Peter. Okay. How many times? This also may be stirred up by the responsibility of that church discipline passage. Because remember... Peter's got the keys of the kingdom. We have the keys of the kingdom. There's a great responsibility, and he's maybe feeling the weight of this discovery of what he's just found out is this responsibility he has among the brothers in the church. And so you want to get it right. So if your brother listens, you want to forgive him. You want to receive him back. You want to stop that excommunication process. Well, how many times, Lord? And in all this, this question that Peter puts forth is actually exposing, it's kind of rounding out what's been exposed here, these duties, these relational duties that we have as citizens of the kingdom, as members of the church of Jesus Christ. And so regardless of which side you find yourself on, whether you're the offender or you're the one who has been offended, you've got three duties in each case. If you're the one who's been offended, you've got to go. You've got to pursue that straying sheep. You've got to pursue that brother that's in sin. And you've got to tell, you got to tell them their sin, and you've got to forgive them if they repent or excommunicate if it escalates. You're on the other side. And look, we're going to find ourselves on both sides. If you're on the other side, you got to hear. you got to listen to your brother's charges of sin. you got to consider those charges. And you've got to repent or explain yourself and trust that church discipline process. You ever thought about how thankful you should be for Peter's dumb questions? I mean, they're not dumb questions. We look at them. These, these are natural questions. These are questions we would have. But him asking these questions, putting his foot in his mouth all the time, is helping us. And so, just like this question and these questions helped Peter and helped the disciples then, they're going to help us today. So think about some of the things that are being answered just in this first paragraph. Who are we called to forgive? 
It talks about your brother who sins against you. Verse 15 and 21. My brother who sins against me. This is who we're called to forgive. Is repentance required? Is this repentance a prerequisite for forgiveness? And I would say that the context in parallel passages suggests yes. And that's not to discount Jesus' command to pray for our enemies. But in the context of relationships in the church, it says, go and tell your brother's fault if he listens. And Jesus says in another place in Luke, he says, tell your brother he sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him, he says. And so the question is again, how many times? And Peter actually gives a radical answer to that question. Notice how he not only asks the question, but he kind of suggests an answer. He says, verse 21, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Now, Peter thinks he's given a radical answer. He thinks he's demonstrating a ton of grace because the teaching at the time was you got to forgive your brother three times. But three strikes and you're out. Not, no fourth time. So Peter's now doubled that and said, and one. To make that perfect number seven. He thinks he's being radical. Seven times, right? Jesus says, no. He says in verse 22, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now that response might have taken Peter by surprise. And I promise you, it probably would floor the Pharisees. But Jesus is going way beyond this, any natural inclination we might have. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, you've heard it said three times and now you say seven. But I say to you 70 times seven. As King James would translate that. So Jesus puts forth this radical idea of forgiveness. But it's not without warrant, as we're going to see in this parable. And Jesus is actually getting this escalation from Scripture. You remember the story of Cain? Cain was supposed to be his brother's keeper. And he turned out to be his brother's murderer. And so God curses him, yet shows him grace by issuing this pro protective decree that said, if anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken sevenfold. And so there's this pronouncement of protective grace on Cain, a sevenfold revenge. And then later, one of Cain's descendants Lamech sinfully and presumptuously escalates this grace and kind of takes it as if it were his own. He, Lamech comes up and he boasts to his multiple wives. He says, I have killed a man for wounding me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. So Lamech is wrongly suggesting that he had the right to unlimited revenge. If 
if anybody messes with him. And Peter, he's getting this answer from Jesus that's a symbolic reversal of Lamech's revenge. Not only does Lamech have it wrong, he's got it backwards. You are your brother's keeper, and if your brother sins against you, you do not take revenge, you forgive him. How many times? Every time. That's what Jesus means. Every time. So take note of that. Take note that Jesus' answer is not literal, it's symbolic. The 77 is a symbolic number pointing to no limit. In a similar passage over in Luke, Jesus symbolically there says, not 77, but seven times a day. If your brother sins against you seven times in a day and seven times he turns and repents, you forgive him every time. You see, it's, it's not literal. It's every time. Forgiveness for Christians is limitless. You forgive your repentant brother every single time. You don't keep counting. I love what one commentator said. He said, if you're counting, you ain't forgiven. He didn't say ain't. I did. Also understand this, that this is not optional. Jesus' answer here is not optional. This is a command. Forgiveness for Christians is not optional. That same text in Luke 17 says, you must forgive him. And so now Jesus is about to turn and give a parable. Another kingdom parable that illustrates this command. It illustrates the necessity of your forgiveness to your brother. Notice how it's connected in verse 23. Therefore, he tells you how, how many times, Lord? Seven times seven, 77, unlimited, therefore. And he gives this kingdom parable. In case you don't remember, the kingdom parable is this story of comparison between two things. And it's meant to portray uh, the, the kingdom of heaven and how its citizens are supposed to live. He's already given us eight of these in chapter 13. You remember the parable of the sower, the parable of the weeds, the mustard seed, the leaven, treasure in the field. And now he's given us another one. He's given us another parable about forgiveness. What does forgiveness look like in the kingdom of heaven? And what does forgiveness look like between the citizens of the kingdom? And so that's where 21, excuse me, 23 through the end now is this parable of the unforgiving servant. Quick overview of that before we look at it is there, there's two main purposes here. One is to illustrate the grounds that Jesus is giving us for this command to forgive limitlessly. Like what basis could he make that commandment on? And you're going to see it's the grace of God is the reason he can tell you you just keep forgiving. And the other purpose is to illustrate the consequences of not doing that. What are the consequences 
of unforgiveness among professing Christians. The characters here, you got a king who's also a master. He represents God. You've got these servants that I believe represent the church members, the, the kingdom community of professing Christians. You've got this debt that represents sin. And you've got torturers. The ESV translates it jailers. You can probably have a footnote about that. You've got these torturers that represent eternal damnation. The parable is divided into three scenes. We're going to look at each of those three scenes. Scene number one. The master is going to graciously forgive one of his servants who has an unpayable debt. That's scene one. Look at verse 23. We see the king summon his servants in order to settle all their debts. It says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. So you got a king and you got his servants. But I want you to realize that he's only called king once. The rest of the time he's called master. And so this king is both king and master of these slaves or these servants. So therefore, servants are also subjects. They're subjects and slaves. As king, this guy owns everything and he rules everything. As master, he owns them and he rules them. And so they are not just slaves of the master. They are slaves and their master is the king. And so they are doubly obligated to him. They are doubly uh, indebted to him. Notice the king calls them all. He's going to settle all the accounts with all of them. And they're brought one by one. One by one. So imagine that scene. You imagine you're one of those servants. And you know what your account looks like. You know what debt you have or not. And now you're being brought one by one to settle up. And it says one of these servants owes more than he can pay. Verse 24, it says, When the king began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now imagine you're that guy standing outside the room and you're next. And you know what you owe. He owes 10,000 talents. And that doesn't mean anything to us. But you got to know how much that is to get this parable. So a talent is a, is a weight, a measurement of gold or silver. One, and he owes 10,000 of those things. One of those things is worth 6,000 denarii. Denarii is another form of currency. One denarii kind of represents a denarius, singular, represents one day's wages. So you work one day, that's one denarii. 
You work 6,000 days, that's one talent. He owes 10,000 talents. You, you put all that together with about 300 work days, 10,000 talents is worth 60 million denarii, which is worth 200,000 years of labor. So you want to pay your debt off, all you got to do is work 200,000 more years. Needless to say, he owes an unpayable, inescapable debt. There's two reasons I say that. One is, obvious, he wouldn't live long. 200,000 years of labor. That's 3,000 lifetimes. And then if he somehow could live that long, he'd never get it paid off. So assume you work every day and you pay everything you make every day. You got to eat. Are you going to borrow for that? What if he charges a little bit of interest? You'll never, ever pay. So now, what's the master supposed to do? Well, he orders a liquidation. A fire sale. Actually, a fire sale comes later. That's another point. When the master realizes that the servant can't pay, he chooses a legal recourse. He decides to liquidate his assets and sell the servant, his wife, his children, everything he owns, just to get back just a little bit of what he owes. You see that in verse 25. It says, since the servant could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife, with his children, and all that he had, that payment should be made. Now that may sound harsh. First of all, it's, it's Legal Under the law of Moses, it's legal. And here, it's actually a form of mercy compared to what happens a little later in verse 34. And how does the, the servant respond to that? Look in verse 26. He falls on his knees, begging or imploring his master. And this is what he says. He says, have patience with me. Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. So literally, he falls down and worships and kisses the master's hand. That's what these words underlying this English translation mean. And he begs. Notice what he begs for. What would you beg for? What would you beg for? You're in the situation of 3,000, 3,000 lifetimes of debt, 200,000 years of labor. What would you beg for? More time. He begs for more time, not mercy. He, he begs for patience. He pleads for forbearance, not forgiveness. Don't miss that. He says, have patience on me. And then he promises to repay everything. Give me some more time and I'll pay you everything. Does he really think he can repay? Does he really think his master thinks that he can repay? 
I mean, what, what's the king supposed to say here? Hmm, okay, how much time do you need? Uh, two, three hundred thousand years? Give or take. He could not rob every bank in town every year of his life and make a dent. Yet the master is moved with compassion. And he frees him. And he forgives him out of pity. Notice those three things in verse 27. First, pity. The master is moved with compassion. That's what that means. Out of pity. For the servant, he's moved with compassion when he sees this hopeless plea. And so out of pity, he does two things. He releases the servant and he forgives the servant all his debt. Look at verse 27. Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Now, a lot of people think they're saying the same thing there. That the master released him from his financial obligation or the threat of being sold or the possibility of imprisonment and he forgave him. But you know what? If you take away the debt, all those other things go away. What I think I want you to see here is that the master has done something more merciful than you can think. He has released the servant from slavery to be a citizen now and forgave him everything. Much mercy. Now, think about this. What should the servant's response be now? Should not the next scene be the servant kissing his master's feet, then running outside and shouting the master's praise, maybe even handing out dollar bills in the streets just to give people's attention to this glorious grace that he's just received telling everybody what an awesome king we have well the first word of the next verse in verse 28 is supposed to jar you out of those rational thoughts and draw your attention to what he actually does instead Great mercy and grace. But when that same servant went out, look at what he did. It's like Jesus is saying, yeah, I know what you're thinking should happen here. But just look at what this man did when he left the king's presence free and clear. Just look at what he did. Scene two. The servant now ruthlessly refuses to forgive a fellow servant's insignificant debt. So he immediately runs out and ruthlessly demands repayment from another servant. Verse 28, when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants that owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. I mean, immediately. It's like... Right after he gets up off his knees, wipes his crocodile tears, and walks out, he goes looking for somebody who owes him. You talk about a short memory. 
He immediately seeks after one of his own debtors. He finds one who has a minuscule fraction of the debt he owed. A hundred denarii, not 60 million. And, and where, did, where did the wicked servant even get the hundred bucks to begin with to loan this other guy? From the master. What he had, he, didn't, he, he received, he didn't really earn and so he grabs the guy and starts to choke him, demanding to be paid. Now, how does this fellow servant now in the throat grasp, how does he respond? Look at verse 29. He fell down and pleaded with him and said, have patience with me and I will pay you. Does that sound familiar? It should. He's making almost the exact same appeal. Have patience and I'll pay you. Have patience and I'll pay you. Now that should ring a bell, right? This is where we're thinking, okay, now the wicked servant's going to, oh man, that's going to, mm, I, I remember now the grace. But that doesn't happen. And this man does now the opposite response from what his master did to him. He does the opposite. He mercilessly refuses to forbear or forgive. Verse 30. It says he refused. The man's down on the floor pleading with him the same way he pleaded. And he says he refused. And he put him in prison that he should pay the debt. No pity, no mercy, no forbearance, no forgiveness, no release. Straight to jail. Do not pass go. but he does not get away with it. Because you've got the other servants who see it happen. Look at verse 31. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. So they witnessed what had happened. And they comprehended this incredible lack of grace. And it really bothered them. It says they were greatly distressed and they did something about it. This can't stand, brothers. They did something about it. They told the master and the master did something about it as well. Scene three. The master is going to revoke the pardon and condemn the servant to torture. He calls this man back into his presence. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine now back in front of the king and the master? That moment of silence where the, the king is looking at you before he says these first words. And look at the first words. Learn something from the first words that he says here. You wicked servant. This is how he addresses the unforgiving one. You wicked servant. And then he basically tells him why he's wicked and why he's about to do what he's about to do. In verse 32 and 33, he says, the master says, I forgave you. Look at how he says this. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant 
as I had mercy on you. He says, I forgave all that debt. Shouldn't you have done the same? Shouldn't you have forgiven your fellow servant this measly hundred bucks? Are you kidding me? You wicked sir. And so the master revokes mercy and returns back to justice. Since the servant didn't imitate the master, now the master's going to imitate the servant. You want justice? You want to demand repayment? You can't forgive? Let's do it. Have it your way. And it says, in anger, the master delivered him over to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. There's a serious escalation going on here. And we need to see that. In their first meeting, you don't get any indication that the master is furious. But now he's burning with wrath. Before, the servant was just going to lose everything and be sold. Now he's being delivered over to the torturers. I'm not sure why the ESV translate that word jailers. You can look at the footnote if you've got one. It literally means torturer. Somebody whose job it is to actively torture somebody in part of a judicial examination. And so he demands that the servant remain in torment until every penny is Guess how long that will be? Forever. He has an unpayable, inescapable debt that has now legally sealed his fate. And it's at this moment that Jesus kind of snaps us back to reality out of the story. And he warns us that this too is the fate of every one of us who does not forgive their brother from the heart. This is what he's doing. Look, verse 34 and 35. Watch how they go together. In anger, the master delivers the servant over to the torturers until he should pay all his debt. Jesus says, okay, that story's over now. So also so also will my heavenly Father do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. It's a simple, sobering explanation of this parable that quite frankly should make every single one of us tremble because every single one of us has felt that and had that unforgiveness in our hearts. You know you have. And so it's time to hear and it's time to heed the words of King Jesus. His parable is meant to warn us and teach us. And what are we supposed to learn? What lesson are we supposed to learn from this parable? My summary is this. Gospel-informed forgiveness is wicked and damnable. Now, I intentionally described this version of unforgiveness 
as gospel-informed unforgiveness because Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's telling, he's telling this parable to the rock, to Peter, to the one, first one who got the keys of the kingdom. He's talking to the church. He's talking to those who bear his name. He's talking to those who profess to be Christians. He's talking to those who say they understand the gospel of God's grace. And that's the first lesson we need to take about, take away from this thing is because this parable teaches us about the gospel of God's grace. If you've ever been to uh, GCC membership classes, the first two classes are on what is the gospel? And we uh, categorize uh, those doctrines under four big headings. God, man or sin, Christ, and the response to the gospel. And this parable teaches us about every one of those things. What does it teach us about God? He teaches us that God is king. God is master of all. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and all that's in them. God made you and me. He owns you and he owns me. It's his world. It's his rules. He is the potter. We are the clay. It doesn't matter whether you know that. It doesn't matter whether you believe that. It doesn't matter whether you like that. It is so. God is master and king, and we have sinned against him a lot. Which leads to the second thing about God. God is incredibly forbearing. He is incredibly patient and slow to anger. Man, this wicked servant amassed a debt that would bankrupt most countries. We too were conceived and brought forth in sin, going astray from birth, telling lies. In every day of our life, we have piled on more debt and stored up more anger and wrath. But you know what? We're still here. We're still here. We're not where we belong. We're not yet in hell. We've not yet been delivered over to the torturers. As a matter of fact, we've got an awesome life. I dare somebody to say here, say in here that God has not been good to you, and kind to you, and blessed you. All the while you rebelled against him. Do you know why? Because God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's why. He's slow to anger. He is unimaginably, unfathomably forbearing of our sin. How many sins has he been patient with? But he will not forbear forever. Because this parable teaches us that he will settle every account. This is how the story starts. That day comes when the king decides it's time to bring everybody in one by one and settle their accounts. 
So we're not to presume, Paul says, don't presume on God's forbearance and kindness and patience. Don't presume that his patience means he's not going to judge your sin. Please don't do that. Because every penny will be paid. Why? Because God is perfectly just. He's perfectly just. He rightly demands justice. He rightly demands that every penny is paid, that every single sin is fully punished. This is exactly why the punishment in hell is both active and eternal. So think of that. Every sin that you and I have ever committed will be punished in full either in me forever or in Christ 2,000 years ago. Which leads to God's mercy that we see here. God is rich in mercy. God is rich in mercy. The, the master in this parable, he's not just forgiven a hundred bucks. He's pardoning the national debt. God is rich in mercy. No debt. Hear this. Sinners, please hear this. Saints, glory in this. No debt is too large that he cannot and will not cancel. No sin is too great that he cannot and will not forgive. And no sinner is too wicked. There is no wicked servant too wicked that cannot be pardoned. Our sins, they are many. But His mercy is more. He's rich in mercy. Now, we need that mercy because we learn about sin here. Sin is a debt. It is a debt to God that will be paid. It will be paid like a crime that must be punished. Sin is a debt that must be prayed, uh, paid. Jesus taught us that sin is a debt in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us of our debts. Your sin is a debt to God. And it's a debt that you are unable to pay. Which is what we learn here as well, that our sin is far greater than we could ever imagine against the holy God. It is far greater than we can imagine or ever pay. Listen, you cannot, I started this sermon with trying to get you to count your sins. You can't do it. If you think you can, guess how many you missed? 60 million. You cannot pay your sin debt to God. Truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is too costly and can never suffice. You cannot buy your way out of hell. The price is too high. What can you give to God? Nothing. Please get that. You cannot do anything you cannot say anything you cannot pay anything to make yourself right with God 
And this is where we learn about an unregenerate heart. This is where we learn about sinners. Because everything I just said about God and everything I just said about sin is true. But you know what? We naturally really don't believe it. Think, unless God does this powerful, supernatural work in your heart, you're going to be just like this wicked servant. Full of unbelief. How does that unbelief manifest itself? Just like it did with this unforgiving servant. Think about what we saw here. Think about the presumptuousness of this wicked servant. This is one of the things we learn from this parable. Sinners are presumptuous. What do I mean by that? We really don't believe God is ever going to collect. The lifelong criminal sitting in an electric chair about to stand before God and his last words he shakes his fist at God and says see you in hell he doesn't really believe that he says it he doesn't really believe that the wicked servant didn't really think the master would ever call him to settle his account he just kept racking up debt day in and day out, even when confronted with the possibility, he still didn't believe the master would actually try to collect. He just says, give me a little more time. But there's a day coming when there will be no more time. Sinners just keep stacking up sin like there's no judgment day. Living like there's no Tomorrow, you keep hearing the gospel over and over again, yet you will not repent and come to Jesus Christ. There are people in this room right now that don't believe he's actually going to collect. And you keep hearing the gospel of God's judgment and hearing the gospel of God's grace, but you just will not come to him. Why? Because you really don't believe God is ever going to collect. You are presuming on God's kindness and forbearance. Not knowing that God's kindness and slowness to anger and his patience and all of that is meant to lead you to repentance. But instead, your heart and impenitent heart just keeps on stacking it up. Storing up more wrath for yourself on the day of judgment. When anger, in anger, he will deliver you over to the tortures until every single penny is paid. You're presumptuous. I was presumptuous. I knew, I knew I needed to come to Jesus Christ. But I said, just give me a little more time. Praise God, he gave it to me. Because he didn't have to. Sinners are presumptuous and sinners are deceived. What do I mean by that? We think we can repay God. Did the wicked servant really think he could repay that debt? How crazy is it for him to ask for more time? But let me tell you, if you didn't get this before, hear it now. You cannot pay your debt to God. You can't. 
Everybody is like this wicked servant. Everybody is morally and spiritually bankrupt in God's sight. We just don't know it. We just don't think we're bankrupt in God's sight. But you know what the kingdom of God consists of? It says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived and think you can work out a deal with God. Instead, be poor in spirit and mourn over your sin and ask God for mercy. Not more time to clean up your act. The only offer God makes to sinners is a free and full pardon. I don't want that. Man, you're deceived. I want mercy. I want mercy. And that leads us out of the bad news of the gospel into the good news. What does this parable teach us about Christ? It teaches us this glorious truth. We can be forgiven because Jesus paid it all. All. And this is where all means all. There was no way the servant could ever pay his massive debt. His only option somehow mysteriously was for someone else to step in who could actually take away such a debt and take it upon himself. And guess what? The servant's master and king did just that. He absorbed all of it. He took the hit. He took the loss. He absorbed the man's massive debt, and that's exactly what happened on the cross of Calvary. Listen, 2,000 years ago, the world witnessed the largest, greatest transfer of debt that would ever take place. When God laid on him the iniquity of us all, when Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on that tree, When God made his sinless son to 